Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I want to say good afternoon to Mr. Foster. How are you doing, sir? Well, good afternoon, Amaru. Thank you for the invitation. Nice to be here. You very rarely get a chance to speak to someone who has so much knowledge and exceeded expectations. And for me, I guess it always starts to the beginning. Um, like, What was life like for you originally when you grew up in um, Bolton? Was it Bolton you were born in? I was born in Bolton, indeed, yes. <clears throat> when I, what was life like? Well, I was born in 1935. <laughs> yeah, age seven. But uh, not born in 35, and four years later, 1939, we had World War II. <clears throat> so all the lights went out. Everything was dark. You couldn't, you couldn't have lights on. And, but, you know, both Jeff and myself, we were, we were kids. So when you're kids, what's different? That's normal. <laughs> so for me growing up, uh, World War II was probably quite normal. I had no fears of it, of course, too young. But we did, uh, we were able to see the effects of bombing on Manchester because we're, Bolton is slightly elevated. And so from our bedroom windows, uh, when, when there was an air raid going on, we could see what was going on in Manchester and you could see the light of the flames and bombs dropping over there. Uh, so growing up, yes, it was 10 before World War II was over and before really education for me started because up till then <clears throat> we had very little education um, all the guys they'd been called up so they were fighting a war so all we had was a few of the women who were teachers but in those days of course women stayed at home women brought up families so there were not many women so there were not many teachers um, <clears throat> We did get a bit, we got a bit in sort of the, uh, the main room of the house where the, we would go, a few kids would go in there and we'd be taught. But, right, so it's 1945 before the war is over and education starts proper and life changed. All of a sudden the lights are on, street lights are on, everything is uh, bright again. And so being brought up uh, in the north of England, both Jeff and I were in the scouting movement, so we enjoyed that. And uh, I went to college. My brother Jeff, he started with the J.W. Foster Company. That's my grandfather's company, which he started in 1895. So it goes way back to then when the family started in sports football. But uh, so Jeff started in the business. I started at 17. By the time I'm 18, both Jeff and myself were called up to do national service, so conscripted for two years. So that was growing up in Bolton. <clears throat> we did the normal things that kids do. Yeah, we, when it snowed, we had, we had sledges, we enjoyed life. And uh, we didn't really know, not really concerned. Our parents must have been concerned. Obviously, there's a war on. But for us, we were just kids. So kicking the ball around was fair enough, not a problem. So I think it's interesting that you said that 
there wasn't really a war. I mean, you didn't seem, you weren't scared with the war, or was it, is it because the media isn't what it is now that isn't that powerful to let you know actually what's really the severity of what's going on? Uh, well, you've got to go back to the 1940s. Radio was a rare thing in those days. <laughs> and we, we didn't have the uh, social media we have today. We didn't have the media we had. <clears throat> you had newspapers. Um, and most of that, we'll say that propaganda took over. So we were told the good news. You were never told the real bad news because all you had was a newspaper and a very limited amount of uh, sound on a radio. And the radios in those days were quite primitive, having to tune them in. So, really, what we saw was what we knew. And uh, we were not influenced by anything, really, the newspapers, as I say. They were told what to print. They were told to print good news. If it was bad news, don't print it. So, so really, uh, we, we were just brought up fairly well insulated, apart from being able to see 10 miles into Manchester and uh, that was going on. Uh, one or two bombs did drop in Bolton <clears throat> and in fact one dropped quite near to the JW Foster's Olympic Works and actually blew the window in. And so in my father instead of going in through the door he just climbed in through the front window <laughs> on that day and he did bring back a piece of shrapnel from the, from the bomb and that's obviously what shattered the window. That it, gone through the window and we had that piece of shrapnel for years. I don't know what happened to it but it was a big piece of chunk of metal and uh, yeah so <clears throat> the warriors yes they when you're young you know you're insulated from most things uh, and until I was 18 Jeff actually was uh, 20 but he had been deferred so we went at the same time both did national service. I was in the RAF, Jeff went to Germany in the army and he saw Adidas and Puma. I was going to ask you, so you spoke about your grandfather, so in terms of entrepreneurship, which is what we call it today, like did that type of element of him having his own business or setting up business, did that feed into you growing up or was it totally separate how you guys decided to set up your own? My grandfather. My grandfather, he was born in 1880, but he died in 1933 and I wasn't born until 35. But 15 months after he died, I was born on his birthday. So I took his name. Grandmother insisted. My grandfather was Joseph William, so I was christened Joseph William. So I took his name. Um, but grandfather, you know, we talk about entrepreneurs, we talk about influencers. That guy must have been a genius for, in his day. He knew, he knew how to influence. <clears throat> he would give his product to leading athletes they would win races, they would break world records. In 1904, he had three world records <clears throat> in one race in Glasgow. Uh, Alf Shrub was the guy's name, and he broke three world records in, in a one-hour race. So he had world records. 1908, and in London, grandfather picked up two gold medals. At least athletes weren't in his shoes, picked up two gold medals. His, uh, his real belle epoque, his, his century was the 1920s in 1920s and we have a letterhead with all the uh, details on not only football team but he supplied all the uh, Olympic uh, runners athletes at the Antwerp Olympics in 1920. I think when he says that he's probably talking about all the British athletes maybe Commonwealth I don't know but those days uh, the Olympics were just track and field 
So much simpler than it is today, you know, just a few athletic events. Um, but also during the 20s, three athletes, um, Harold Abrahams, Lord Burley and Eric Little, they all won gold medals. And they were all immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. And I don't know if you know Chariots of Fire, but if you do, they were immortalized in that. So that's my grandfather. That's the sort of business he grew. Fantastic. And then for yourself, it's cliche, but how did you start the Reebok brand with your brother? Well, as I say, Jeff and myself, we started with the company and at 18 we went to do national service. <clears throat> Before we went to do national service, we were just teenagers enjoying life, doing the normal thing that teenagers do. And, uh, but going away, you go away for two years, your mother's not there, you've got to make your own bed. You, you know, food isn't the same, you've got to go for your food. So you're not delivered everything on the plate. And you start to learn how to look after yourself. And um, I did okay because uh, I could play badminton reasonably well in those days. So for most of my two years national service, I was off playing badminton and that was great, good fun for me. Although my job was radar operating, um, which was controlling fighter planes. Where, and we sell what they call PIs, practice interceptions. Practice interceptions where they got two planes and they had to come together, either head on or from the side. But, so that's, that's what I did when I, when I was working. <laughs> Most of the time I, I was playing badminton. So, but what, what happened in those two years, we did change and we came back. And we came back to the Edward Fosters and we came back to a failing company. The company was just failing. What grandfather had built, great company, lots of uh, um, successes. Uh, in fact, on this same letter that I was talking about, we, we have 96 football and rugby teams that grandfather supplied, both boots and training shoes, and teams like Arsenal, Manchester United, Man City, Liverpool, you name all the big football teams we know in the UK, they all wore Foster's boots in the 1920s, which is incredible. <clears throat> and yet, when Jeff and I came back to Foster's, we didn't supply any of those. We'd lost it to Adidas. Totally lost the football scene to Adidas. And Jeff and I, we tried to persuade, um, first my father, uncle was not interested, and my father said, come, we've got to do something. You know, we need, we need somebody on the road, we need to do some marketing, we need some new models, some new ideas. We need, didn't make any difference. And all my father could say to me was, Joe, look, when, you, when your uncle's gone, and when I'm gone, this business is yours, you can do what you want with it. And I'm saying, come on, Dad, you know, we don't want you to go, number one. You know, who wants you to go? But number two, this company will be gone long before you. It's going to die. Didn't make any difference. So uh, Jeff and I, with uh, we, we had little option really. We did go to uh, we went to college at night and we to footwork. We learned about making shoes. And okay, we, you know we should know about making shoes. We knew about making running shoes and football boots, but we didn't really know anything about the business. You know how shoes are properly made, the opportunities. But the big thing about that was not only learning but we made a lot of friends we we met a lot of people people in the industry and so when we did leave 
that was to be that was to prove a, a, a really great help because we wanted a machine to do this a machine things that fostered didn't didn't and bought they used very old methods we wanted to get some new methods and so we asked our friends and we were able to buy machinery and set up our our little factory so in 1958 Jeff and I set up our company Mercury Sports Footwear Well, the first challenge was that uh, we knew we, we, we needed a future <laughs> and, and Foster's would not be our future. So that was our first challenge, set up a, a company. Um, the challenges, well, there were a, a number of uh, sports footwear manufacturers in the UK, not a lot, but they were all bigger than we were. <clears throat> and the biggest challenge was the fact that football was, we couldn't go into football. That, that was owned at that point by Adidas. They, it would have taken so much money. So we turned to what we knew and that was running, athletics, cycling. We went into cycling first. And we also went into rugby league. Rugby league is a north of England sport. So we were looking for white spaces. We, we called these white spaces where the, the bigger guys, the, they, they were too small. Too small for them to even <coughs> worry about. And at the time, they probably didn't even know they existed, like fell running in the north of England, where fell running cross country, a lot of things that really we could, we could go into, which is great. And um, we did very well at that. We, we owned that business. We, meant we, were, we, we were well into the sports business. It, we knew, it, and it's a question whether were we in the shoe business or were we in the sports business? Well, we were more in the sports business than the shoe business because a lot of the people who were our competitors, you might say, local manufacturers, were in the shoe business. And if somebody said, make a pair of football boots, they'd just make the product. We were, we were with the athletes. We were part of the athletes. And we'd go to events and we would sell out to the back of the car and things like that. But I, I really thought, okay, we told my father what he needed, and he needed to get out there and sell his product. So I thought, I'll go out there and sell the product. Off I go, calling on all these sports uh, shops. Great, here I am, meet the guy, the buyer. I'm Reebok, who's Reebok? Who's Reebok? Well, me, showing the product. Oh, nice product. And then he'd look up and think, look, I've got Dunlop. I've got Adidas. Why do I need Reebok? And I must have heard that a dozen times. Why do I need Reebok? So it occurred to me he didn't need Reebok. <laughs> These retailers didn't need me. They used to sell anything. They were just sports shops, usually run by an ex-footballer who just opened the store and he'd sell everything from snooker cues and chalk for your, your tip and anything that was sports. So. Uh, we were lucky. We used to go to these events, these running events, and I thought, these are my customers. I should be selling to these guys. And, well, the three A's in those days, the Amateur Athletic Association, they had a handbook. And every club, every running athletics club was affiliated to the three A's, and there must have been 400 in this book. And we got the name and address of every secretary of every club. What do we do? A letter. I send a letter to every club and invite them to buy direct from us and we'll give them 15% discount. And if anybody in the club wants to become an agent, he can have the 
and great. I got 100 agents on that first letter. Second letter, another 50 agents, and eventually I ended, I ended with about 250 agents. That was our business. Now we were selling direct. And uh, I'm then getting phone calls from these sports stores who said, who was Reebok? And they're saying, you're selling to our local sports club. Look, I'll stock your, your product if you stop selling direct. And I said, no, I'm not stopping selling direct, but you can get it at wholesale price, which is less than 50%. And I'm sure you can give your sports club 15% because that's pretty normal discount for, for clubs. Um, about 90 of them agreed, but I I'm not going to stop selling direct because to us, that was our marketing. You know, that was how we got our market and uh, great. So we had a very nice business, but you know, the big business was football and we couldn't get there because Adidas really had got that sewn up. So for me, it was America. And uh, the family were not too, um, too happy to send me to America or let me go to America because that would have cost a lot of money to go there and start looking for distribution. So luckily, I'm reading a magazine, uh, Eurosport, I think it was called, and the government, the government, the British government are advertising for people to export. And they're saying, we will pay, <coughs> we, we will actually pay for a stand at the NSGA show, that's the National Sporting Goods of America, we'll pay for a stand, we will pay your return at a fair, and we'll also pay 50% of your, your expenditure whilst you're there. So that was it. I'm going to America. It's 1968. That, yeah. that is almost like the perfect like, gateway for you to actually expand. It just seemed like it was like almost divine intervention in a way to get you over there. But my, my question to you is, and I feel like sometimes, sometimes people live in like certain regions within the UK, they don't see a global vision. So what, minus the blocks of like Adidas um, having a monopoly over the market, what made you think, what were you seeing that made you think America was a place for you to, to take the business? Wow. In the first place, there's 350 million at that time, Americans, and uh, the bulk of Americans spoke English. Uh, a, few, a few do speak Spanish, but they probably speak English as well. But the, So you've got almost 350 million Americans speaking English. The disposable income of the Americans was incredible. We, we, if, you, if you rank that as 100, America's 100 in terms of disposable income and weed. The nearest one was Japan, which was 35. Germany was about 30, and the UK was about 18. So in terms of where do you go? Because people said, why don't you go to Europe? It's nearer, you know. You've got 26, 27, 28 countries, different languages, cultures. So going to Europe, great, but then again, you had Adidas and Puma. They were in that market, they were, they were tough. Why go somewhere which is going to be tough? Why not go somewhere where you've got a better chance? Because in America, we knew that every university, every college had coach, and coach was a god. And uh, you could go to those colleges with a sports scholarship. I think we only had one in the UK that you could go to with a sports scholarship. However, in America, loads of them, so that's why I chose that market. This is where we could go, and they all did track and field. 
athletics was big in America. So if I wanted to expand our business, America was the one to go to. So that, that was the choice. What's the cultural differences in doing business then in America to what you found in the UK? Well, I think the cultural difference was that they accepted things more than in the UK. The UK was sort of, if, if, if they had something, they stayed with it. It's like, you know, we, we, you know, we, we already have uh, this, so why do we need something? Just like those retailers that I met who said, why do I need Reebok? In America, they don't do that. Reebok, another brand, another opportunity. They're, they're more open to opportunity. So for me, it was a market, but how do, I, how do I get into that market? Okay, I can show the NSGA show. And on that first show in 1968, I got a lot of people coming up saying, well, great stuff. Where do we buy these? And I'm um, saying in England. Oh, what's that? Is that New England? No, not New England, it's across the water, you know, England. Oh, London. London, that's it. <laughs> that's where we are. Uh, they, they were not of a mind to, uh, to import. So all these stores, again, small stores, a bit like they were in England, small stores. No, too much hard work. So uh, I'm 1968, and uh, I now have to search and find a distributor. When do I get my distributor? 1979, 11 years, 11 years of keep going to America. I had six attempts, six people who would, <coughs> who gave it a shot. Yeah, we'll, you know, we'll try Reebok. They all failed. We just failed miserably. One guy I had for four years trying to get into that market. <coughs> In the end, he gave up. We didn't get there. But the difference was that when I first went, Running was really only just starting to be something in America. By 1975, it was a big, big, uh, it was a big event in America. Everybody, so many people were out running. So the demand for running shoes grew. During those years that I was going, running shoes grew tremendously. And a magazine called Runner's World, they started in the late 60s and by 1975, they were a 50-page, full-color magazine telling everybody where the next event was, where your 5K, 10K, half marathons, marathons, and who won this race, who won. So everybody bought this. 350 million Americans, probably 35 million were running by then. Great. And later on, about 70, 76, um, Bob Anderson, who produced this magazine, he was doing so well. He knew he, he could tell everybody which was the best shoe to buy. So he produced this shoe edition, and of course the best shoe to buy was Nike. Wouldn't it be? <laughs> Nike, great. Phil Knight was really thrilled. Fantastic. But Phil Knight was importing those from Japan and Asia. And when somebody like uh, Bob Anderson tells you, this is the number one shoe, out of those 35 million Americans running, I want a pair of those. At least 10%, at least three and a half million wanted that shoe. Phil Knight had no chance. <laughs> you can't just turn the wick up like that. It's not, and, and all of a sudden, so for 12 months, all the retail trade, they're being hammered. I want a pair of those number one shoes. They couldn't get them. And Bob Anderson, in his wisdom, at the end of one year, decided, no, we've got to have another number one shoe. 
and just as Phil Knight's getting the product coming in, Bob Anderson puts another number one shoe. It might have been New Balance, Atonic, Brooks. I, I, I don't know who it was, but uh, it certainly wasn't uh, Reebok. Same thing that happened with uh, Phil Knight. They couldn't supply. Anyway, by the time they're getting supplies in, another 12 months had gone. And now, though, Bob Anderson probably got his act together and decided instead of saying there's a number one shoe, I'm going to do star ratings. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the top shoe would be five stars, but you could have three or four. And that was, that was my ticket. I knew getting number one was a lottery. That was very difficult. But I knew we could make a five-star shoe. So in 1978, we made a shoe which we thought would become five-star. We tested it uh, in Edmonton at the Commonwealth Games, and we got a shed load of medals. We did really well with our shoes in uh, Edmonton. Um, so we talk about February. This is when the NSGA show is February. 1979 and I have my Aztec shoe my great shoe I have it there and uh, running was so big a category now that Kmart I don't know if you know Kmart they're a very big distributor big retailer in uh, they have lots of sheds one of, the, one of the big retailers in America and they came along a guy came along and said look we want 25,000 pairs Ooh, yeah yeah that's about six months' work for our small factory <laughs> in the UK. But, you know, we didn't go into this rather stupidly. We, we knew if we got a five-star shoe, we needed help. And so I had, I had friends, friends which I'd developed, and one of those friends was in Barter. Barter still are the biggest shoemakers in the world. They were down at Tilbury, which is pretty close to here. Um, and my friend said, look, we'll help. You get any orders, we'll help you make them. But the guy from Kmart said, yeah, but we need a better price. Now, although Barter could make them at a better price than we could in our small factory, he meant Asia, <laughs> South Korea. Luckily, again, we'd made contact with uh, the Korean uh, agents in London. So they were already taking the shoe and uh, preparing samples for me. Okay fine so yeah we could do that <clears throat> so that was came up but I'm thinking that's a big business and they just look on they work on square footage 
if we if they buy 25,000 pairs and they don't hit the financial figure for the square footage they give the shoes that would be my last 25,000 pairs so towards the end of the show a guy called Paul Feynman came on the stand and Paul Feynman was running a small company called Boston Camping that's an outdoor company and they were selling tents fishing rods you name all the bits and pieces that go in to outdoor and um, and he was running up with his brother and brother-in-law and I could tell by the way he was talking he was pretty fed up they had been doing it for 10 years and <clears throat> it was going nowhere so uh, I said Paul look at this shoe five stars he said you're not five stars are you eh, no we're not five stars but you know think of August and we we hope we'll be five stars so <clears throat> with Paul he said look I said Joe if you get five stars, I'll be your distributor. Now, I like Paul. I could get on with him, you know, but the, the buyer from Kmart, it was like so remote. But Paul, you know, he knew a bit of business. He had to do business. He had to finance it. So apart from the fact that I went across uh, between February and uh, the end of July to see Kmart and check them out, big company, big operation, I also went to Boston to see Paul and his brother and his brother-in-law. Nice little operation. I think it would be nice. Bolt Reebok onto this. Fantastic. Okay, so we get to the end of July and the, uh, the August edition of Runners World will be out at the last week in July. And I phoned Paul. I said, Paul, can you go down to the, court? the local kiosk? They must have Runners World on by now. <clears throat> An hour later, he came back. I said, Joe? Aztec, you got five stars. Oh. That was it. Wonderful. He said, not only that though, Inca, which was a spike shoe that we also sent for checking, uh, that got five stars. And Midas, which was a racing shoe, also got five stars. So there we were. We'd arrived in America with three five star shoes. Previous to this, we'd been pushing, pushing. Now people wanted us. So now we're in America and Paul Feynman is going to be our distributor. What's interesting about that? I'm, I'm, I, what was coming into my head is, what is then happening when you happen to go through the eleven years? Like, and I was reading some of the notes. It's almost like no matter how well you plan, make contingency plans, external factors could easily derail you at any time. How did you have the faith to keep going on? Like, because wasn't there ever a time you thought, actually, no, let's just leave this part. Let's just focus on the UK. We became pretty so well known in the UK that uh, distributors in the UK wanted to take us and distribute our product. It meant giving up uh, agents and it meant giving up direct sales but um, I thought well if, I, if we do that it'll give me more opportunity to concentrate on America to get something to do with distribution. The first one, great, friend of mine, he was the friend that actually went to Barter eventually uh, so that was good. Unfortunately, uh, th that was about 70% of our production was our Reebok production. And uh, the company I, I went with, Lawrence, they went out of business. It's a story. It's in the book. <laughs> what happened to that? But we went out of business and uh, it nearly cost us dear. But we had to put a plan together. Um, we, had, we had to go down and collect all the shoes they hadn't sold, bring them all back and then we started direct selling again. <laughs> we started everything we could do. 
otherwise, I think if the bank manager had got hold of the fact that uh, <laughs> we were not going to get paid for those shoes that we'd sent out, I, I think he would have had a, a big problem and would have been questioning our our small but overdraft uh, figures. Yeah, we'd have to. However, two months it took us two months, maybe total three months to recover from that, sell all the product. Um, I mean, surprisingly enough, because we were selling this direct, we were making more money. We were making more money than going through the distributor. So really, it, in a way, it helped our finances. We, we recovered from that. And shortly after that, another company came up who heard of the problem, uh, but they also knew that Reebok was quite a desirable product. So I went with another company, and uh, that took over. So these things were happening during those 11 years. We were growing, doing different things, um, we did something like uh, to get more visibility during the, during the 70s so many countries so many major cities started having marathons and those marathons they were on television so every country you know whether Brussels whether Berlin or, you know London they, they, they all had these on television and I thought how do we how do we how do we do something here so I, uh, I organized Reebok Racing Club, which meant vests and people could become a member of Reebok Racing Club, and it had Reebok Racing Club all the way across here. And uh, so we started giving them to top, top athletes that we could give them to in the, in the UK, and uh, we, we came to a deal that if you would run at the front of a marathon and stay there as long as you can, we'll give you shoes as well. So we gave them the shoes, we gave them the kit, and they went up front and all these televised marathons, there was Reebok Racing Club at the front, maybe five or six guys. They weren't going to win, but they could, they could probably do the best part of 20 miles up front. So that gave us a lot of promotion. So <coughs> a lot of these ideas we had to really boost the company and boost its, uh, its appeal as much as anything helped. But of course, once we got the Holy Grail, once we got three, uh, three stars, uh, or three shoes with five stars, well, you know, that, that was it. We're in America. As far as I was concerned, we got there. And, but that wasn't, that wasn't the thing that made Reebok grow. Aerobics. Women. Aerobics. We had, whilst we were growing nicely as a running company, we had uh, a tech rep called Arnhel Martinez down in LA. His wife, Frankie, she's going to aerobic classes. He didn't know that. But they're coming back with her friends and they follow it, great. And Arnold is saying, Frankie, what are you doing? And she said, we're doing aerobics. And what's aerobics? Well, we're actually exercising to music. And it's great, great fun. Arnold went to the next class. There's the instructor in a pair of sneakers. We think they might have been New Balance. Half the class are wearing sneakers. The other half, they've got nothing on the feet. Right. And this, this was Arnhill's light bulb moment. He thought, why don't we make a shoe specifically for this, for aerobics, and make it for women, on a woman's last, woman's sizes, out of nice, soft glove leather. Fantastic idea. His idea was so good, he decided he'd go to see Paul Feynman. He's in Los Angeles, the other side of the country, Boston. He got the plane, got to Boston, went to see Paul Feynman, and 
explained everything. And Paul said, slow down. Slow down, Arno. We're a running company. And we're doing very nicely, thank you. Why, why do we want to make dancing shoes for girls? Uh, and he tries to, but Paul was saying no. You know, keep your eye on it, and if it starts to grow and do something, we'll, uh, you know, we'll think about it. Arnold wasn't happy with that. So what, Arnold went down to the back door. It was only small in those days. But back door, Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett's our production man, and he's in Korea more than he's in uh, in the USA, but he's there. He did a better job with Steve. He convinced Steve, Steve, we, we really must look at this. Arnold got his 200 pairs, and he's given these to uh, to the instructors, some of the leading girls, and fabulous. They love them. They're so comfortable. They look great. And the girls were not just wearing them for the aerobics, they were also wearing them in town, going to work, doing whatever. They were so comfortable. Uh, one fault, one problem. They're made out of glove leather. And glove leather, you can tear it like a piece of paper. It's 0.7 of a millimeter thick. And when you take the surface off, because you've got to stick a sole on it, you've got to put glue on, it's half a centimeter. So 0.5 of a centimeter, disaster. And yes, after one month, these shoes were just falling apart. Fortunately, we're in Los Angeles, and the girls didn't care. They thought the shoes were so comfortable, they went out and bought some more. Okay, we had to answer the problem. First thing we did was, well, first thing that the manufacturer, they, they actually laminated it with nylon. And when I learned about this, because I didn't learn about the fact that they were making them out of uh, glove leather, uh, if, if I'd have heard, heard about that, I'd have probably said, whoa, what are you doing, what are you doing? However, marketing is something, shoemaking is something else. <laughs> and uh, so they started laminating it with, with nylon. And I said, look, you can't do that because the natural thing of leather is that it breathes. You put nylon on it and you stop it breathing. So they're going to get all sweaty. They're not going to enjoy that. So what did they do? They punched a series of holes in the front to, to allow it to circulate. Fine, marketing again, not shoemaking. They did that. But we still had problems with, uh, with the softness of the leather, the thinness of the leather. And we eventually cured that by making it with more like a garment leather, which was thicker, uh, still soft and supple. Great. So we're going, and we got that right. And the girls loved those shoes. And when Jane Fonda went out and bought a pair of Reeboks to use in her exercise videos, that was it. All of a sudden, boom, we just exploded. We were a $9 million company at that point. 12 months later, we were a $30 million company. Then a $90 million company. $300 million and $900 million in under five years. Surprisingly enough, whilst we were still doing some running, the aerobics just took it. That was, I mean, you can say that 95% of the growth was aerobics. It grew so rapidly, so fast. And when you think about it, that really was white space. There was nobody there. We had it. And this was something. Women had never owned an athletics category before all of a sudden they owned this this was just women and the men were saying what's happening we love the we love the look of those soft shoes we kept it away from we couldn't give it to the men because keeping up with the demand for those aerobic shoes that was our biggest problem we almost forgot how to sell product 
because it was a matter of could we keep up with demand that was already there. And uh, we were lucky. We were lucky when we we're going from 300 to five to 900. It's how do you get the how do you get the product? It wasn't the money anymore. It's how do you get the product? And Nike Nike just hit a wall at that time. You know they've been going tremendously, but all of a sudden they found themselves with too much inventory, and it wasn't selling as fast. So they came out with about three major major manufacturing uh, units in South Korea, and we were just ready. We just went straight in, and that. That allowed Reebok to really sort of take advantage. Okay, we, we'd got to almost a billion, and the company then started to. We had to, we had to move into other categories. We had to go into baseball, in, into basketball, and American football. I don't think we did too much in baseball. We grew in basketball. You know, Shaquille, Shaquille O'Neal, that was great. And you mentioned Pump. Pump was something that really, really belonged to basketball. And I don't know if you remember D Brown. D Brown, yeah, halfway, dunks the ball, bends down, and he pumps up his shoes. That everybody, everybody talks about that. Even now, when I when I meet them, oh, I remember, you know. And they were all kids like you, you know, when you kid. I want a pair of pumps, and parents are saying, no, too expensive, <laughs> too expensive. You know, you can get some commas, you get whatever. Those pumps are too expensive. But no, they went out and got a job, anything to save up some money and get a pair of remote pumps. So <clears throat> we grew to about 3.8, just short of 4 billion. And at that time, I'm traveling the world. I'm putting on distribution. And I put a, I'd put on America, now I put on another 30 countries. So I got 30 countries. I'm also uh, hosting a pro celebrity tennis tournament in Monte Carlo. And the celebrities were all A-listers from Hollywood. We had Sinatra, we, we had uh, Roger Moore, we had uh, Sean Connery. You, you can name them all. There were so many of them that, uh, that we had over there. And uh, this was great. And, and I was doing the hosting and doing the traveling. And when I'm traveling, I'm picked up with a limousine, going to the best hotels, dining at the best restaurants. But the challenge had gone. You know, I had had a challenge for so many years to really do whatever. Now we had so many accountants, so many lawyers, and all these people in between. And to me, it was just traveling, and uh, the, the challenge had gone. Great, thrilled that the, the company is still there and the company is doing well. And I'm always thrilled about that, and we'll always support that. But for me, that personal challenge, yeah, so it was time to step back. So at the end of 1989, early 1990, I stepped back and uh, enjoyed life. But eventually, I got to write a book. There's that quote, um, like every success story, there's, a, there's been a sacrifice, a mighty payoff for the glitter and the gold that comes with industrial celebrity. There's only room for one love when your heart is fully invested in your passion. And it seems like that's where you probably decided to. Well, I, I decided to write the book because I, during my working life, with Reebok, we, we didn't have uh, social media, we didn't have the web, we didn't have computers, we didn't have smartphones, but now I'm relaxing and I've got a computer now and I'm reading Wikipedia and I'm reading Google and they're telling me this is how Reebok started. And uh, a photograph of Joe Foster. Well, I don't know if he was called Joe Foster or not, but that photograph was certainly not of me. 
So I, I guess that sparked a little bit of challenge again. And so I thought, I've got to put this right. So start writing your book, Joe. So eventually I got the book written. I had some help because it's difficult to put the emotion into something when you're, when you're writing it. So come on, you know, you've got to make this. Got so we got it right. We, we got the, uh, the timings right and, and everything. Uh, and eventually we got the book just to put the story straight. Uh, we launched it <laughs> right at the beginning of the pandemic. So of course we, did, we couldn't do any signings or anything like that. But uh, since then, people have started reading it, particularly entrepreneurs and, they, and, and people who do these, uh, uh, you can learn from people, you can online or you can go to universities for an MBA or an executive MBA course. And now they're all asking the question, how did he do it? You know, and reading the book, they, they're sort of thinking, well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff in this book which shows what you do if you're an entrepreneur and what you've got to do. So since then we've been invited, Julie and I, we travel the world now and go over and we talk about the book. But in the book, there's a lot more than I can ever say in the, today. And uh, a lot of things that happen and how it happened. Um, like how we got the name Reebok, that's another one we haven't even touched. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, that's the end of the actual episode. Uh, yeah, okay then, we'll touch on that. Well, Jeff and I, we started off as Mercury Sports Footwear in 1958. Great, we're doing well. And our accountant said, Joe, you better register your name because you're doing well. And if somebody else starts making Reebok shoes, making Mercury shoes, not Reebok, making Mercury shoes, um, you're going to have trouble. So register your name. We were a bit naive. We didn't even know that there was a register. So uh, I was given the name of... Uh, um, there were agents in Manchester, there were patent agents in Manchester, go see them. So I went to see them and they searched out the Mercury name for me and they came back and said, hmm, can't use it, it's already registered. Oh, however, they will sell it to you. It's British Shoe Corporation have it registered for footwear. They'll sell it to you, but they want a thousand pounds. I said, I've not got a thousand pounds. Oh, they said, well, you can take them to court and claim it because they're not using it. I said, how much is that going to cost me? I said, about a thousand pounds. So, <laughs> same story. So he pointed through the window. It was a nice day in May. And he pointed to a sign called Kodak. It was Kodak. And I said, well, what's with Kodak? He said, well, that's, they made it. They made that name up. They invented it. A name like that is perfect. He said, but don't bring me one name. Bring me ten. I said, ten? Ten? Why? And he said, well, it takes about a month to put a name through the register for everybody to check out and whatever. And if, if we go one at a time and you don't get one for 10, it's going to, you're going to be 10 months without a name. We're really going to be in trouble. Bring me 10. Okay. So I go back and we're sitting around the table, as you do, trying to think of a new name, right? So we come up with Cougar. How about Cougar? Yeah, Cougar's a good name. Cougar Sports. Um, Falcon. Falcon sports. Where are we going? We're going down animals or birds, or we're going down that route. Yeah, okay, okay. Let me take you back to 1943. I'm eight years old, and like COVID, we couldn't go anywhere. Nobody could move about because the war was on, but we had local events. And I was entered into an 80 yard race, and I won it. I won the race. I'm wearing Foster Spikes, so that probably gave me an advantage. Thank you, grandfather. Maybe 
That was a good thing for me. So I'm wearing spikes and I go up and collect my prize. And what do I get? I get a dictionary. And I'm saying, where's the football? You know, I'm a kid, eight years old. What do I want with a dictionary? And we don't, have, we don't even have school. And what's more, it was a Webster's Dictionary. And a Webster's Dictionary is an American Dictionary. So an American Dictionary in 1943, and uh, I'm somewhat uh, destroyed by the fact that that was my prize. I suppose I could have kicked the dictionary around, but <laughs> it wasn't a football. However, let's fast forward to 1960, and my dictionary sat next to me, and I liked the letter R. So I open it, R, and it's not long before when you're thumbing through, you come across E, R-double-E-B-O-K. What's that? Reebok, what's that? It's a small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle, fabulous. That's it, that's our name, fantastic. I put it at the top of the list, go back to the agent, and say, look, here's your list, here's your 10 names, but we want that one. <laughs> we want that one. This is, we, we could fall in love with this. We really need that. He's a lawyer. He said, okay, Joe, we'll, do, we'll see what we can do. Took him about two weeks. He came back and said, Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. Great. The registrar has one caveat. If anybody wants to make shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Well, Jeff and I sort of looked at each other and said, that'll never happen. No, that'll never happen. That's impossible. So we got Reebok. However, the registrar in his uh, wisdom said that we can only put you in the B section of the register because uh, of the fact that if anybody uses Reebok skin to make shoes, that's it. Ten years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you into the A section. And we said, really? Why? Well, he said, everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal has to become second. <laughs> So that's how we got Reba. I actually, and I'm, I don't feel I'm alone, I actually had no idea that it was an animal. Because I just, I just associated it to the brand. Right. It's incredible. I think, you know, when you, and I guess within the book, there's going to be a lot of principles, because I think, you know, you can go more in depth than that. But what to me was interesting to actually know is how did you deal with work-life balance? And then how do you deal with making um, executive decisions? Because the scaling is going amazingly well, but you know most people have issues with hiring the right people, like conflict resolution, um, even family members thinking that maybe you've got unlimited resources. So as things are growing, how did you how did you handle those new spaces that you were entering in terms of like now the wealth? Well, fortunately, we're in a very visible business. Sport, you know, we we never we never went into recession. Recessions happened in the UK. We never went into recession. The demand for our product was always there. And it's because sport has continued, even from my grandfather's day, has continued to expand and expand. You know, people in the north of England, so football started in the north of England. They worked in these big mills with all this noise. And the guys, when you know, time, out, time to go out, somebody get a ball and they start kicking it around. And, this is how that started. It's the same with any sport. Sport now is so big and it's growing. And in fact, sport now influences street so much. Everybody's out there with casual clothes on, sports on. In fact, it's, it's probably performance clothing. You see a lot of girls now just walking around in gym gear because it's comfortable. And uh, 
it's now it's now the fashion. So we're all fashion companies now. And once Reebok started to use influencers, not just for performance, they used influencers like singers and music. They they used that influence, and so it's elevated the sports product. It's elevated it to now something that is fashion and everybody wants to take a piece of. And when it comes to employing people, we we were we were a winning company. We had a culture, and it was always that people wanted to be part of that culture and that that was the great thing about it you know we were not just making widgets or whatever that uh, we needed we, we needed more people to use a lathe or whatever no when they came to Reebok they wanted to be there they, they wanted to be part of it and we made it certainly I made it my uh, uh, my policy not to sell Joe Foster but to sell Reebok it was always Reebok people really don't know Joe Foster we're, I'm only just coming out from the shadows now. <laughs> I, I need to sell Joe Foster because I'm selling the book. Now we've got the book. No good writing the book unless you can sell it, unless people go out and buy it. So we're, we're, we're having a bit of fun with that. And, and it's taken us all over the place. So uh, that's why we're selling Joe Foster right now. But before then it was Reebok and everybody believed in it. They, they, they felt they were part of it, which we wanted. We wanted people, to, we, we listened to people. And it, it told it, if you get the right people, you will grow. Yeah, it can't all come from out here. One or two ideas come out. The soul that I designed, which is this soul, <coughs> this soul that I designed in 1978 for our five-star shoe, is still used today. The Roadstar soul is still from 1978. Here we are in 2022, and it's still one of the best. The uh, the star crest, which is on the on the tongue, is something which I designed way back in about 1975, and that's still used. So what amazes me is that we still have, uh, but I think that's good. I think people like that consistency of a brand. When they see that consistency, okay, we move on, we inch things on a bit, we use different things, but when they feel that consistency and and I think people fell in love with Reebok. A lot of people fell in love with Reebok. And a lot of people who are now in the late 40s, early 50s were kids. Kids at Reebok's height. And they, they were sort of, they wanted those pumps. They really wanted pumps. And that's what they remember. People started to use, were Reeboks traveling? And they became the, the shoe of choice. And uh, you know, even in many articles, go get your Reeboks if you're traveling. It almost became a generic term for sneakers. Fortunately, sneakers is now the generic term, but, <laughs> but uh, Reebok almost became that. So yeah, it's great. And now with Adidas for 15 years, which didn't do Reebok any good, you can't blame Adidas. You've got to blame the people who sold it to Adidas because Adidas paid a lot of money, but they took a lot of the things out of Reebok. They, they took so some of the assets. Could I just, and when you get to the point of actually, because I'm a Man United fan and I'm hearing about how the Glazers are about to sell, and I kept thinking like, there's valuation and there's actually, you know, what a company's making. But when it gets to a point where a sale of that magnitude is is proposed, like what role do you leave it to your lawyers? Like how does it how do you even go about selling a brand that big? Because it's it must be so complex. Well, by the time uh, I just came along in 2005, I had retired or stepped back in 1990. I've been, I've been connected with the company forever, but 1990 I stepped back uh, and the brand plateaued. 
uh, instead of growing. You know, you, in, with a company, you can, can continue to grow. If you plateau, the danger is you're going to go down. So the Reebok brand plateaued and couldn't seem to get itself going again. Um, was that painful for you? Was it painful to, for you to see that when you'd invested, like... Well, yeah, I mean, you... Uh, I, I think we'd got a brand which was going to last for a long time and would not really die because it had so much credibility in it. It's just that uh, it needed the right people to keep it growing, to keep it moving forward. And the somewhere at that point where we didn't get the right people. Uh, if we'd had the right people at the top, I think that would have continued a nice growth. To be where, say, Nike is today at over 20 billion, and uh, Adidas are now in the high teens of billions. Um, unfortunately for Adi, they've just got a few little rocky moments right now. They'll come back, but you know, it's, uh, they've got to get over their rocky moments. And I, I don't know, I, Nike is sort of uh, making some decisions that would deciding to come out of retail and now I think they're going back into retail so I, I think when you get to the top of the hill it's where do you go next and I think Reebok lost that uh, they were at the top we were at the top when I left we were number one we'd overtake Adidas we'd overtake Nike we were number one well, what year was that that's uh, the end of the 80s well, 89 90 up to 91 92 we were still number one is it and I wonder because um when it's, what's the competition element like? Is it, you know, does, do Nike try and poach some of your staff? Do you try and take some of theirs? Like, how does it work on that end? Because it must be, that's, that's a lot of... Yeah, well, there, there were a couple of lawsuits on those things going on and a lot of, bit, bit of infighting. And it, I mean, when I was there, a lot of the people had worked with Nike, had worked with New Balance, and, and they'd come to work with Reebok. So there's a lot of um, cross-fertilization of people coming in and out. The, you know, the trade was a trade, and uh, um, I always enjoyed it. I, I know some of the people sort of were, got a bit annoyed at uh, whatever was going on. And, but I think if you concentrate on the, uh, the opposition or the... Uh, uh, the competition. If you concentrate on the competition, you're not doing what you should be doing. <laughs> and that's concentrating on where these spaces are, where you can take the brand. And Reebok had a lot of white spaces. They did a lot of things. They went into, uh, uh, say, music before anybody else did. And so it goes on. So it's going into these spaces. It's making your marketing has to be looking for something new, something a little bit different. And uh, I think Reebok lost that. Uh, that that vision. They lost something in the late 90s and the, the early noughties and so eventually we're not going anywhere. The uh, investors, investors think it's time to get out, find a buyer and unfortunately they found uh, Adidas. Alright for Adidas, Adidas took a few of the assets and grew the brand in America which is what they wanted to do and Reebok drifted down a bit, became in the shadows and now now uh, we were in Panama and they're going on, Reebok is unleashed. <laughs> so Reebok is, is going to, by the, end of, uh, by the end of next year, they expect the brand to be near enough $5 billion again. <clears throat> Purely and simply on the fact that we were available globally through maybe 20,000 outlets. There are that many outlets now that will have the brand. So <clears throat> it's going to grow. Then we're next. 2030, they expect 10 billion. Well, yeah, I'm expecting them to start looking bigger. 
what was the value of it? And then also globally, how many staff did you have working for Reebok at that time? Well, we didn't have it valued. You know, I, as far as I was concerned, I let people in because we needed money. We needed money. So we didn't, we didn't sell it, just letting people in. That, uh, and I slowly backed out. Um, so it wasn't a valuation. It was like, you know, we, when you need things, you've got to make decisions. We needed the money. We would never have been able to take advantage of the aerobics growth if we hadn't have accepted that we needed the money to start it. In the end, it didn't need the money, but it needed millions to begin with. And millions and millions, now you need billions, <laughs> but it needed millions. And I didn't have that. And if I'd have sat, sat there and said, no, 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 I want to remain in control, no. For me, it was, where can we actually take the brand? And when we became number one, you gotta say, yeah, the decisions were right, you made it. And so making the decisions to allow people in or sell you your share, you know, I'm founder. And lots of CEOs have come and gone, but they can't change the founder. Just on investment um, briefly, um, it's quite clear, not agenda is the wrong word, but an investment is, is always transactional, however it's um, dressed up. Did you feel that that became more and more evident as soon as investors are coming that it just seemed more transactional? and? I won't say less creative, but I just think about, you know, what's the P&L, how we, how we do it, as opposed to, oh, this actually is a good product, how can we make this product as successful as the last one, but it seemed more financially driven. I think when money and finance become the driving force of the company, you're losing, you're losing the real sort of uh, focus. The focus has got to be developing the brand. And, you know, financial people should come in and get out as they wish. But you know that focus for the brand should be on creativity, not not on the money, and uh, and, and I think there will be more focus now on creativity again. And you know there was a time, and and I suppose during those sort of uh, early uh, years of the 21st century, when if if a company is not continuing to grow, investors would prefer to get out. And so that's when valuations come in and whatever. And, and it got to that size where Adidas did buy the company and they paid three, $3.6 billion for it. And uh, since then, ABG bought the company, which was valued. Then it got valued at uh, a billion. It was doing about a billion and a half in, in revenues. But uh, ABG paid 2.5 billion. So it's who thinks they can thought what they can do with it. And whilst everybody thought they'd overpaid by a lot of money, I think that people will look back and if in 12 months or 18 months they've got to five billion, they could actually uh, float the company in IPO and they could get the money that they invested back and still, still remain the major shareholder. So who knows which way it will go. So I, I think money is a diversion away from a brand. A brand needs to keep its mind on uh, what it's doing, where it's going, and let the people with the money make their minds up. But really, you've got to put the energy into the brand itself. And in terms of the book, what, 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 um, what takeaways, and I know it's quite extensive in terms of the things it covers, but what takeaways do you, 
do you feel people should or could take away from the book? From the book? I think what they take away is the fact that uh, I had a lot of fun, we had a lot of problems, we turned those problems into advantages. Uh, and I think, and it's what people say, you know, so you get faced with, you can't, you've got to change your name. Uh, for whatever period of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, 10 weeks, or whatever it takes, so you'd be disappointed. The thing is, you've soon got to change that around to saying, this is an opportunity. Yeah, something's coming along to say now there's an opportunity to do something better and you turn yourself and that, that's what the optimist is the optimist is one that turns himself into something better and then you get a fancy name for that like you're an entrepreneur <laughs> does it um, and I think it's mindset seems to be a big thing you know and I see you as a visionary because I'm just looking at the walls that we see today I, we look at things and Everything's on Instagram and we think, oh, I need to have a blue tick, I need to have these followers. We see limitations as opposed to scope to scale. And I'm looking at the times that when you were growing, some things hadn't even existed, you know. And I think mindset and being able to pivot seems to be a key thing. Like it was football, you know, from your grandfather. Then they went to like women's apparel. Like, and these were things where, like you said, wide spaces. And do you take that as part of your own innate character or is it, you know, the people around you? Because it wasn't the obvious moves at the time that you were making them. I think if you get people who want to be part of the thinking process, you can't do it on your own. No matter how brilliant you are, you'll, you'll run out of ideas. You, you need people and you need them to be likewise thinkers. You don't want egos keep away from egos <laughs> but you want people who want to be part of Reebok and if they want to be part of Reebok or not part of their name they want then somebody will come up now, the idea Arthur is down there in Los Angeles the opportunity comes in front of him it would have never come in front of me in Manchester <laughs> but it did in Los Angeles so we have the right people and if they have the vision Arnold could have said oh that's okay to his wife yeah that sounds good but no he had that eagerness to say wow I yeah, I must look at that. So you get, you know, you attract those sort of people. Yeah. And, you know, that's brilliant. You, you, you buy accountants, you pay for accountants, and you pay for lawyers. You, you don't expect them to think about creativity because they have a job, they know what their job is. Okay, if they've got a bit of creati creativity in them, that helps. <laughs> but basically, they keep you straight with the finances, straight with the legal side of it. But you need a lot of creative people. And uh, I mean, that's really what, what a brand needs. It needs creative people, people who will think a, a little bit differently. And uh, be ready when somebody comes up with something to, as we now say, pivot. For me, it was change direction. <laughs> like, we used to grow the business, now it's scaling the business. But you know, these are just modern words for the same old thing. And then with the book then, how actually, what's the actual time it took for you to, to do? I'm sure there must have been quite a few revisions, like, but how long does it actually take for you to, from inception to actually publish the book? About five years. five years. It took a long time. It's surprising enough when you start writing, you don't spend all five years on it, you just put it to one side for a bit. But uh, the thing is that you, you want to get the chronology in order. and. Okay, certain things are very obvious, but others are not so obvious. Think, 
how did I do this? How did I do whatever it is? And uh, you need a bit of help. You need to ask people who you were with. You need to ask people who write books. Uh, how do they make it go in a nice line? So that you know, you're not going over here and you lose people's attention. It, so you, you need help. It's the same with the brand. I needed help. I couldn't have done all, all that happened. But if you allow it to happen, if you accept other people to come and help, then it happens. And yes, you need a bit of luck. We needed to be in the right place at the right time. Running came around at the right time. Those were the sort of things. Aerobics came around at the right time. So you need that, that bit of luck. But people say to me, there's no such thing as luck. It's being prepared for when the opportunity arises. But you know, opportunities are everywhere. And can you be prepared for everything? Timing, you know, if you're not there at the right time, people who were really working with computers, now computers, that's, that's, that's controlling everything now. That's taking everything anywhere now. And even when we go to do these, uh, to the universities to talk to the MBA people, the, and the professors there, they, so they start off with, okay, John, what was your exit plan? We didn't have an exit plan. Now you have to have an exit plan because investors, yeah, well, let's put it this way. We were a product, and in those early days, we were looking for money. The only place we could go were bank. And unless you had collateral, you couldn't get money from a bank. So it was hard work in those early days. But today, there's so much money, so many financial institutions, that they are now looking for products. But when they look for a product, you come up with a product, they want to know the exit plan, because if they're going to invest a million, two million, ten million, they want to know how long it's going to be before they can take that and a profit from the business. So it's, everything's turned differently. You know, it's such a different world these days from when we did our, when we did the start. Regrets, my brother died just as we got the five stars. We, he didn't see that growth. He didn't see that wonderful thing that uh, came along and that was so sad. And uh, I talked about Barter, and Barter did get it wrong. If Jeff had been around, he would have been down with the Barter factory, showing them what to do. As it happened, we didn't have anybody down there, and they changed things, and we, we got a lot of problems with that. But it's in the book. <laughs> um, some of the lessons that you've learned um, along your journey. Well, the lessons will always be different for different people. And I think the one thing that I say to, say to anybody who asks the question, the three most important things. Number one is have fun. Number two, have much more fun. And number three, it's got to be really fun. Because if you don't, if you don't have fun, you then you've got to pivot. Get out of it. Move. Don't try and make something work that isn't working. Give it your best shot, but don't try to make it work. Pivot. Do something else. Don't worry, if you've got an idea and it fails, that's a lesson. It's a lesson, but you know, you get up and you go somewhere else. To do that, you need to be an optimist. And this is where it comes to the genes. Are the genes there to pick up to be an optimist? Are you an optimist? Is, is the, you know, even when things are really bad, well, we could do something about that, we could change, that's an opportunity. It's the way you look at it, instead of, oh my God, why this again? Oh. I don't know, I'm sick of this. You know, if you get to that, then you're losing it. You, you know, you've, got to, you've got to be ready 
for the fact that life is not a smooth, nice, straightforward path. There's always something in the way. There's always somebody to give, give you a kick. Okay, you know, dodge it, do whatever. But don't expect life to be just simple and straightforward. It isn't. And the more you can accept that, the more successful you will be. So it's, and, and I know that, the, and I know a lot of people who are not optimistic, brilliant people, but without the optimism, they tend to fail more than succeed. And so maybe optimism is being stupid. <laughs> maybe optimism is just saying, and it's taking a gamble, not a gamble, a risk. Now, optimists take a risk, you know. Well, well, is it going to be safe to do that? Well, okay, I'll do it. And you take that. If somebody is forever saying, no, no, you don't do that. And, I, and I, when I say take a risk, these are calculated risks. They're not stupid risks. They're not something where, they're not a gamble. It's wrong to say you gamble. You don't gamble. You, you just take that risk because you think, oh, I can always come back. <laughs> I can always start again. I can always do it. It's a possibility, you know, that it can happen and not thinking that instinctively it's impossible to happen. Because we need, I think, as you're saying, we need the world driven on people who are visionaries and actually can make things manifest from their mind and actually bring it to the world. Without that, the world of being how it's like 3,000 years ago, it's always moving, so yeah, those are key. Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, COVID, COVID was, exceedingly bad and terrible, caused deaths and whatever. But would we be doing this now, but for COVID? Would you be doing Zoom, but for COVID? You know, it's that. Uh, well, yeah, you know, the, these are the things that, we've advanced so much in so many different ways, and now the world is different. And okay, a lot of people work from home, a lot of people don't want to work again. But those, those are the pessimists, you know. The optimists are saying, well, I can work from home, I can do this. They take advantage of the opportunity and make it work, not take advantage for themselves. And sort of, you know, don't want to commit again. You have to commit. You know, if you're going to be successful, commit. And smile, even, even when there's some bad things. And, you know, not every day is good. <laughs> there's a lot of days that are not so good. But, you know, you've you got to know that you're going to come up again. And and that you could smile at it. Fortunately, I'm at that right side now, and I can look at all those bad days and just say, ah, they were nothing. <laughs> hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 